Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Thank you, Dave, and welcome, everybody. Happy June to you. We're glad that you're here today. How many people have already had their vacations already, jumped on it, got it done? Come on, a few of you. How many people are looking forward to one this summer? How many people are not having one at all? Okay, so I understand, got it. Um, family vacations are where our family stories are made, right? Folklore, I've already heard a few. Uh, we had car trouble, uh, our kids got lost on a hike. Um, in our family growing up, uh, we didn't have a lot of family vacations, but the few we did were often ruined by my dad's uh, skill at taking a shortcut. We would get lost, and this is before GPS, this is before maps, this is before any of that, and he'd go, oh, I know what to do. And then by, you know, all the knowledge of humanity rest on him and his ability to navigate by the stars meant that we inevitably spent more time looking for the destination than when we had planned. And we laugh about it now, but during the times it was happening, it wasn't a lot of fun. And so I don't know what your oops are on family vacation, and we're not going to talk about a guy on vacation, but we're going to talk about a man today who um, was faced with, well, what do I do? And what do I do with my family? And he kind of makes uh, a decision to take a shortcut. And he makes a decision to go really in the wrong direction, running in the wrong direction. And his name is Elimelech. We'll meet him in just a minute. But to set the context once again for the social and political environment that the book of Ruth is written in. I want to second what Dave said. If you want to join us, we're marching through Judges, um, which is the context of the book of Ruth. And you, if you're reading along with us in the Bible reading plan, you can see why this last verse makes so much sense. This is what it says. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Now, they've mentioned this multiple times heading from the 17th chapter down. And the point is simply this. God wanted the people to see him as king. And he kept having to send uh, servants. Uh, last week, I read about just this amazing woman named Deborah who came in as a judge to get the Israelites' attention, to get them back on course so that they could enjoy some uh, years of freedom and some years of peace because they would live for the Lord. And I say, this is the context that we feel like we're living in today. Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. And by that, I don't just mean the cultures around us. I also mean many Christians live disobedient lives and they miss out completely on the blessings that God has for his people. And so when we, what we'll see kind of right off the bat is the political social climate of Ruth is also um, changed immediately by a natural disaster, a famine. And it's because of this famine that Ruth actually bring, is brought into uh, this Israelite's family. It's where she meets her, her husband. Now, pastor and teacher Warren Wisby says, you know, Christians kind of have three responses to difficulties, because that's a famine is a pretty difficult thing to try to navigate. They can endure it, they can escape it or they can enlist it. And by enduring, what he means is, I'm just going to grip my teeth and I'm going to get through this difficult time in my life. And the problem with that, of course, is it leads to either pride, because I, I gutted it out, 
or bitterness. It just goes on and on and it wears me down and I'm, I'm struggling all along. The other option is to um, escape it altogether, to sidestep it, to go, you know what? The troubles of my day, I'm just going to sidestep and I'm going to let, let it play out. I'm going I'm to avoid it. And the last one is to enlist it. And when you enlist the troubles, what you're saying is, you know what? They're not going to control me like what happens when I endure it. Because that's all you talk about, your tr troubles. I'm not going to escape it. I'm going to enlist it so it works for me. My troubles, I'm going to begin to ask. And my difficulties, I'm going to ask of them, Lord, what are you trying to teach me through these difficulties? Believing this. We learned it in Romans. And we know that... <clears throat> In all things, God works together for the goods of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. So if there's a good God who's able to work together all things, then man, I'm going to enlist the difficulties of my life and learn and grow from them. But today we'll see a man who runs the wrong way. He's more interested in his, his physical life. He's living, interested in living rather by, by sight, not by faith. His physical life, not his spiritual life. And he ends up in the enemy's land. And that's not where we want to be. He is trying hard to avoid the troubles, escape the disaster, rather than deal with it. What about you? What's your tendency? When you're faced with something really difficult, do you tend to endure it? That's what I do. It seems uber responsible, but uh, it's often just full of pride and fear. It leads to bitterness. Or do you tend to escape it? Or do you tend to enlist it? We're going to read the first six verses to kind of set the stage. Here they are. In the days when the judges ruled, there's our context, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his sons were Melon and Kilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem, and they went to Moab to live there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other one Ruth. After they had lived there for about 10 years, both Molon and Kilion died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When, the, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she said to her daughters-in-law, uh, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Now, this is just six verses to introduce the book of Ruth. And you glance at it, you go, okay, just kind of setting the stage, but there's a little more going on than meets the eye. Not only are we given the context, the social, political, but we're given that natural disaster context. There's a famine in the land. That's where we start. We start with this moment of famine. And sometimes God would use famines to discipline his children. And, and you would think that if a group of people were enlisting God and the troubles, they might ask, hey, God, what are you trying to teach us here? But they don't seemingly do that. The response to the famine is given before we even meet the players. We even meet the characters. The response is to sojourn, is to be there for a while. To sojourn is to live as a foreigner for a season. And then um, it's kind of funny because uh, where they're from is a town called Bethlehem. Uh, yeah, Bethlehem. I get that right? Uh, sometimes I get all these names mixed up in my head more often than not. Yeah. What does it mean? What does the town mean? What does the name mean? It means house of bread. 
it's kind of ironic that you have to leave the house of bread because of a famine. There's a little town in the smallest parish of Louisiana, Tennessee Parish, called Waterproof. It's a little, it's a, it's a bold statement for a town right on the edge of the Mississippi that's been moved three times because it's flooded, right? It's not waterproof. And evidently, Bethlehem was not the house of bread at this moment. But more importantly than just the name is Bethlehem was mentioned at the close of Judges a mo- couple times where people left Bethlehem to go to uh, places that were unsafe. And so if this were a movie and the, and the scenes were changing from Judges to Ruth and the name Bethlehem was dropped by a character or by a narrator, there would be ominous music with it you would know already that this is, this is not a good thing to leave Bethlehem. It would be very unadvisable. Leaving Bethlehem for Moab, well, Moab was a strange place. The family initially went to stay for a while, to sojourn. That's what we see right off the bat. But in verse 2, it says something different. It says they lived there. Then in verse 4, it says they were there a decade. So what started out as a short visit turned into a decade and into a long time. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that Abraham and Isaac and the book of Genesis, they both face famines. Unlike Elimelech, they sought the Lord. And the Lord said, you know what you guys need to do? You need to go to Egypt. They were directed. There's no such direction under Elimelech's decision. It's just not there. It's totally out of sorts. And then he goes, not just anywhere, but he goes to the enemy's land. We saw last week that the Moabites, they really treated the Israelites horribly. And God said in Deuteronomy, you know what? <clears throat> They're not to be among you for their 10 generations. So he's making a bad decision. He's running in the wrong direction. That's what's happening here. And it's important to note from the cultural context, and we may not get this today in our super individualistic uh, world that we live in, but a Elimelech's day and age, you don't just up and leave your community. You don't just up and leave your tribe. You don't just up and leave and leave everybody else to be faced with the problem. If this was indeed a, di- a discipline from the Lord, you would think he would go, hey guys, God's trying to get our attention. Let's pay attention to him and let's go with him. And he doesn't do that. He just leaves. And in their context, there would be a lot of shame associated with such an independent, individualistic, my family first move. But that's what he does. That's what he does. After we hear about all this, then we're introduced to the players. And their names are important. And it says so. Whose name was? Whose name was? Highlighting this. The head of the family, Elimelech. His name means my God is king. Who's his God? The God of Israel. He's king. This means that either his parents or somebody thought, we want our boy to follow the God of Israel. Now remember, Judges, I mean, Judges ends with this phrase, there was no king. Elimelech's name says, I don't need a king. My God is king. I'm going to follow him. But that's not at all what he's doing. And so the name, saying the name kind of points that out to the, to the Hebrew reader. They would, they would get that, that irony. 
Naomi's name means pleasant one. And every part of her life is pretty pleasant except for the decade in Moab. <laughs> it's, not, it's not pleasant at all. Her boys' names? Oh, yeah. Melon and Kilion, what do they mean? They mean sickness and destruction. There's a party for you, right? Sickness and destruction. Maybe named during the famine, the first part of it. What are you going to call your boys? Oh, sickness and destruction. That's their name. And then there's the Moabites, Orpah, and Ruth. And then we're almost immediately after all the players are introduced, it's like this surprise twist. All the men die. They're all, they're all dead. And Naomi is left with nothing, nothing at all. And then in verse 6, it says, while she's in Moab, she hears of the Lord's provision. Verse 6 is the first time the Lord is mentioned in the whole book of Ruth. And his name brings with it grace and provision. And Naomi has, she's the end of the line. This is it. There's no one. My boys are gone. My husband's gone. I'm responsible now for myself and these daughters-in-laws. I mean, can you imagine the weight of that and the shame associated with that? She's a widow with widows. And in that moment, when she hears about the Lord's goodness, she makes a decision. And her decision, it's her first decision. Her decision is to go home. I want to go home. In many ways, it is a return to the Lord, his provision, and his promises. So I have no idea what you're carrying with you today. I don't know what weight you're under. I don't know how your summer has started or what it includes, but I want to pray for us as we begin. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you now and we ask in Jesus' name that you would meet us here. As the staff has prayed already this morning, we pray that you would visit us through your word, that your spirit would have reign of our head and heart here, that you would use your word to challenge us, to comfort us, to call us back to you. Lord, I pray for those under such enormous stress right now and may feel like the weight of devastation is upon them. The weight of loss is upon them. I pray that you would use your word and bring them great comfort, that they might call out to you as we sang, we need you, God. I pray for those here who need to trust in you anew, trust in you for the first time that they would. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Connor's admission of a confusion about the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, often happens to Christians. Um, and the Apostle Paul helps us understand, if I'm going to read the Old Testament, how am I supposed to engage it as a person who lives in the New Testament? If I'm going to read about the relationship with God and the old agreement he had with the Israelites, how am I to understand that in the new agreement that he's made with Christ followers? And he tells us as he's teaching the church in Corinth how to deal and fight away idol worship that seeped into their life. This is what he says. It should be on the screen behind me. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on things as they did. Chapter 10, verse 6. A few verses later, it says these things, and he's referring to a lot of the Old Testament. These things happened as an example 
uh, as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. So the Old Testament can be a great source of warning because this is the unbelievable thing about the Bible. It doesn't hide the mistakes of the people of Israel. It just paints it as it is and shows God as he is. Faithful, faithful, faithful. And so as we look at the life of Elimelech, let's just assume we're not to do it like him. Let's do it differently. And that's how our outline will unfold. When we're faced with trials and difficulties, how should we respond? Let's live by faith, not by sight. It seemed like Elimelech was living by sight, not by faith. So I just review again verse 1 where it says, he went to live for a while. Your translation may read sojourn. It's not a word we use a lot. <laughs> so they say for a while, right? First Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, for we live by faith, not by sight. To live by faith, what does it mean? It means we claim the promises of God and we cling to the word of God and we are ready to obey it no matter what the circumstances or how we might feel or what it might mean. We're just going to obey God. That's what it means to live by faith. And it is often a great challenge. And too often today, we get sucked up into the wisdom of this world. Now, I'm not saying there's not wisdom in the world, but the wisdom of the world is based on its view of the world, how it makes decisions. Again, the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth but do not deceive yourselves. If anyone thinks you are wise by the standards of this age, and his age was different than our age, but there's wisdom, collective wisdom in our age, uh, you should become fools so that you can become wise. <laughs> For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and the futile. See, we need to we need to live by faith and not by sight. When we face trials and difficulties and we have decisions to make in them, we need to bring our decisions to the Word of God for examination. Help me understand. In this difficult season of my life, these are the decisions I'm trying to make. I'm going to submit them to the Word of God for examination. Then I'm going to go to the people of God for consultation. And then I'm going to go and say, Spirit of God, I need your confirmation in my heart and life. I'm going to pray about it, and I'm going to wait upon the Lord. We don't see any of this in Elimelech's life. He just makes a decision and goes, and it's quite costly. So what trial, what difficulty, what pressure, what decision are you currently processing right now? Right now today. Let me ask you some questions as you have that in your mind. Have you sought the Lord in prayer? Many times we just, you know, buckle down. We just, you know, read. We Google. We do all kinds of things. But have you sought the Lord in prayer? Have you waited upon the Lord? Have you just sat before him and said, I need to understand this? Have you opened your hands and said, not my will, but yours, as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Have you prayed the Lord's prayer that thy will be done 
on earth in my life as it would be in heaven. This is what it begins to feel like when we say, here's the decision before me and here's how I'm going to pray about it. Have you asked other mature Christians to speak into the difficulty, into the decision that you're trying to make? Have you been humble enough to say, hey guys, can you pray with me about this? Can you pray for me as I consider this decision I'm trying to make? Have you considered not only what your actions will do for you, but what they'll do for your family and how they might put them in jeopardy? Have you searched God's word not only to understand your problem, but to understand yourself? Lord, help me understand myself because so many of my decisions are based out of fear, not faith. Not seeing the full picture, but only a portion of it because I'm so anxious or eager. I love this verse. It can sound like a confrontational verse, but it really is a comforting verse. For the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of my heart. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of my heart. Lord, help me understand what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, how I'm processing this. Or are you simply operating on the, sim- the wisdom of this age? The wisdom of this age is built on the worldview of this age. The worldview of this age has substituted the spiritual for the material exclusively. The rational for the emotional almost exclusively. The collective wisdom of community for the individualistic, hyper-individualistic, I know and I have to do it myself. So if you bring your concerns to the Lord, let me give you a few warnings. Oftentimes, we're in a hurry. We want to Google it. We want to search it. We want a quick answer. We don't want to wait. I hate to tell you, but the Lord's in no hurry. If you bring it before Him, don't be surprised that you're going to have to wait Don't be surprised if it's not really what you want to do, but be assured that if you wait, commit it to doing what he directs you to do, that it'll be what he desires and it'll be within his will. And that is the best place to be. And don't be surprised if it looks radically different from the culture and the wisdom around us. You will have an opportunity to live by faith if you follow the Lord. Because the watching world around you may think, that's the stupidest thing. You don't need to do that. So when you're faced with difficulties, as Elimelech was, we need to live by faith, not by sight. We need to be concerned about our spiritual life, not simply our physical life. Not simply our physical life and provision. And this, boy, this speaks to the the tune of our age. Verse 2, we see that uh, uh, the desire was to sojourn, but they lived there. That's where it ends in verse 2. Let's put verse 2 up there. Went to Moab and they lived there. They stayed. I'm just using that progression. Now, any good husband or father is going to want to provide and take care of his family. No question about it. But to leave the blessing of God in order to do it is dangerous. It's foolish. It's not advisable. To leave the promised land would have been leaving the place of blessing. To do it as a singular family would disconnect you from the the community of faith. 
It leaves you just totally exposed to leave the people of promise, the land of promise, and the promises of God. Consider Jesus when he was tempted. It says in in chapter 4 of Matthew, Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted, and while he was there, he thought, I'm going to fast, I'm really going to focus, I'm really going to enlist this process. And he was hungry after 40 days, as you might imagine, and the tempter came and said, look at those stones baking in the sun. They look like your mama's bread. Just turn them into bread. Satisfy your hunger. Everything will be fine. But Jesus said, you know what? There's something more going on. Let me assure you, there's always something more going on. And so he replies to the tempter, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the wor- every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He enlisted his trial, even though it was self-imposed. He leaned into it. Now, when we... Uh, faced with extreme pressure, we're tempted to play the short game, to find the shortcut, to run the wrong way, to compromise our moral convictions and maybe even expose our family to danger. Now, most of us are not faced with starvation. I get that. But we are faced with pressures today. Today, I have seen and continue to see many families overextend themselves financially. They put themselves in such a financial place that they're upside down. And what are they doing it for? They're chasing an ideal. They're trying to keep up with the Joneses. I've never met the Joneses. So I've got nothing against them, but I don't, you know, the kids have to be in the right places and doing all the right things. Maybe never asking ourselves, What is this doing to the soul? What is this doing to our soul? The rat race that our culture lives in is unsustainable. Something's going to break. It might be your bank account. It might be your marriage. It might be your children. It might be your work. Something's going to break. And we get to being so busy, we have no time. We have zero time to reflect and say, God, what are you doing? What's going on here? Help me understand the other thing that's happening that I need to take into perspective. We don't don't take time to work and foster an attitude of gratitude for what we have because we're concerned about what we don't have. And an attitude of gratitude is not something we just wake up with. It's something we learn. That's what the Apostle Paul said. I have learned to be content in all situations. Just didn't wake up that day and go, wow, I practice it because I have space to do it. I don't have any time to invest in anyone else because all my time is consumed with either chasing the rats or the keeping up with the Joneses. I'm in a group of men, a D group. We're reading, uh, I would recommend it, only, only read a third of it, but I would recommend it. Um, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World by John Mark Comer. In the book, he quotes another fellow that will be on the screen behind me whose name is William Irving. William says, hey, be careful that you don't mislive. It's a common theme in our modern world. This is just another take on it. He says this, there is a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions that you might have enjoyed uh, while alive, you will end end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you'll look back and realize that you've wasted the one chance at living. 
Instead of spending the life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you've squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various trinkets that life has to offer. Elimelech was distracted by the Moabites. Let's just go over there. Let's just go over there. The grass is greener. The grass is greener where you water it. That's where it's greener. Jesus said something that was so startling when he said it, it took people back. It's no less startling today. What good, is, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What about you? Have you been overly concerned about the physical and have not spent any time on the spiritual? You're spending some time, you're here. I recognize that and affirm it. But we can not keep up with just an hour a week. We can exchange our soul for the world. We can put our family and our community in jeopardy. If you are exchanging your soul for what the world has to offer, how are you going to know? How are you going to know that it's happening? I don't know how you're going to know, but I've got some, I've got some, some insights that might, that might be helpful. You might be gaining the world and forfeiting your soul if all of your decisions are based on how you look, your reputation, your appearance, and or your status. All those things are important to a, to a degree. But when they are the drivers for our decisions, then we're going to make the exchange that we may not want to make. When your decisions are completely driven by how much money you will make or save or can invest, when those are the drivers rather than how much money I can give and share and save, you might be making that exchange. I'm not a part of the PGA. I don't really understand it. But just a cursory reading of the newspaper seems to be that those folks have made a decision that's purely driven by money. And if you're not a golfer, then just look it up. It's everywhere. Because it's so much money and it comes on the heels of such a loud and pronounced, I will never, <laughs> and then you did. And we can look at it and shake our finger, but we can also be guilty of it. You might be gaining the world and exchanging your soul if you pridefully keep your own counsel only. You never include your spouse. You never include friends. No one can question your decisions. No one can shoulder the burden of your decisions. No one can pray for you and intercede for you because you're going to make all that all by yourself. Maybe. If those things are happening, maybe consider that you're making this exchange. When faced with trials and difficulties, we're to live by faith, not by sight. We're to be concerned about our spiritual life, not simply our physical life. And we're to stay out of the enemy's land. Verse 4, 3 and 4, it ends with this, after they had lived there about 10 years. So you see the progression. You see it moving. What began as a sojourn for a while settled into a nice little community and then a permanent residence. As we have listed on your program, it says sin will <clears throat> take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost more than you want to pay. 
every time. You can substitute the devil will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Elimelech's family didn't have to go very far. Moab's 50 miles away. It's not like they had to journey for three years. It was the neighboring country. But they, in that 50 miles, they abandoned the promised land. They abandoned the people of God. They abandoned the promises of God. When we make a deal with the devil, as little, as large as we may seem at the moment, it's going to cost us more than we can anticipate. It always happens. It's like the frog in the kettle. If you, many of you know this. If you put a frog in a boiling pot of water, it's going to jump out. It's going to sense the heat and jump out. However, if you put a frog in a tepid pot of water and then bring it to a slow boil, it's going to die because it can't determine, it can't distinguish between the temperature of the water. And I don't want to compare us to frogs, but that's what I'm doing. Very, very subtly, what seemed like a good idea for a moment became an okay idea for a little longer than a bad idea. So let me ask you this. Where have you been tempted to sojourn in the enemy's land? Where are you tempted to go for relief from the pressures of this world? Now, when the pressures are really big, in our culture, what often happens, particularly with men, is they isolate. They isolate, which means they don't have anybody to help shoulder the load. They don't have any counsel to help keep the thing moving. And then we get tired, and we get so tired that when temptations come, we have no strength to fight it. And then maybe we acquiesce. Maybe our first step, maybe our turn toward the enemy's land is this statement that comes out of our mouth. You know, I deserve a little break. I deserve it. It's Friday. I'm going to kick back. I deserve it. Worked hard all week. The name Elimelech means my God is king. But he left God completely out of his decisions. He made a decision out of God's will and went to Moab. His boys married Moabite women. God will salvage that, not Elimelech. After a decade of disobedience, there are three graves of Jewish men and three widows. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Some of you are struggling right now those decisions that you're trying to make, they're heavy, they're big. I know this. And you may be tempted right now to go into the enemy's land. Let me give you a few places to avoid. The town of too much. The town of too much. In the town of too much, that's where you're going to drink too much. That's where you're going to eat too much. That's where you're going to work too much. There's subdivisions in there called out of balance. And you think, you know what? I'm just going to have a little over the weekend, Saturday. Well, Friday and Saturday. Well, Thursday, Friday and Saturday. And then I'm going to be in too much Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Try to recorrect on Sunday, but I'm back at it on Monday. And I didn't plan to be there all week, every week, 
but I'm there all week, every week. And what turned into just a couple weeks a month or now most of the month, you see where I'm going, don't you? We can, we can easily think, you know what? I'm going to sojourn in the town of too much. How about the town of Numsville? The town of Numsville. It's a little different than too much. Numsville, his life is just coming at me, and I just, I don't know what to do, and I don't know how to shut off my brain. I don't know how to rest. I don't know how to be silent with myself or before the Lord. I don't know how to inquire of the Lord, so I'm going to binge watch something that's ridiculously awful, and I'm going to binge watch it for 14 hours in a, in a day. And then I find myself so uh, anesthetized by this great numbing out process that what I did on Thursday nights or Friday nights, I'm doing now, same story. Same story. There's another town that you need to avoid, and that's lost connection. What happens in lost connection stays in lost connection. That's when we disconnect from everything. We indulge in pornography knowing full well there's no righteous thing about it, but I'm just going to tiptoe in. I'm just going to sojourn. And then it becomes a coping mechanism that becomes a way of life. I'm just going to hook up. I'm just going to go through disconnected relationships. These are all towns that are not far away from where we live, work, and play. And there are others. I'm sure you can fill them in. So let me assume that you have sojourned into the enemy's land. And maybe that sojourn is just beginning, or maybe it's been a week or two, or maybe it's been a year or two. Now what? Now what do you do? Well, here's some things to do. First, admit it. I always wanted my dad to admit just one thing on those shortcuts on vacation. You're lost. The North Star has fooled you. You don't have all knowledge. You don't know where we are. Admit it. Nope, I'm not going to admit it. You have to admit it to yourself and others. I am in the wrong place. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. I don't know if you've ever confessed anything to anyone, but it is a cathartic experience to say, you know what? I'm where I shouldn't be. And I'm going to confess this. And I'm going to find healing in that process. Secondly, admit it and then confess it to God. Don't just stop with a person. Go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm, I've left the promised land. I've, I have abandoned your promises. I have quit trusting in you. The, the, the God who saved me, the God who went to great lengths to secure my salvation, I've turned my back on that. And then repent of it. Repent of it. Repentance is a word that I don't use a lot because it often means different things to different people. It's a good word. It's a biblical word. It's a great process to help us understand it. I go to 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is the sorrow and the tears that come because I got caught. 
Worldly sorrow is the sorrow when I finally weigh the cost of that 10 years in Moab and I realized how costly it was and how I could have invested that money differently, how I could invest it in my life differently, how I could have done better. It's the sorrow of being caught. It's the sorrow of the mistake. It's the sorrow of looking bad. It's not the sorrow that's called godly sorrow. That sorrow is not is concerned about what I've done wrong, but to but whom I've offended. I've let you down. I've abandoned your promises. I've turned my back on you. They both have tears, but one leads to repentance which is a turning away. And it leads to freedom. And it, it leaves no regrets. The other one looks good, but it only leads to death. So if you're in the wrong land, admit it, confess it to God, repent, and find accountability and community. If you're just out there sojourning in the land all by yourself or just your little family, don't be surprised at failure. We need recovery groups. We need support groups. We need discipleship groups. We need community groups. We need them because all by ourselves, we'll just get lamb blasted. We need each other. Who are you going to let in? Who are you going to trust to walk with you? Who are you going to invite in? Say, hey, will you, will you walk through life with me? Will you pray with me over this? You might be surprised. You will be surprised who says yes. You will be surprised who's not interested. Go with those who are. And I want to end with this idea. If you've lived in the foreign land and you didn't know anything else, and you don't know anything else, the God of the universe sent his son into enemy territory for one reason, to rescue us. To rescue us. I want out. One of the startling realities of the book of Ruth is that Ruth is a Gentile enemy of God that he rescues and uses. All you have to do is stop and cry out to him. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for your word that gives us great warning. Helps us understand not only what to do, but what not to do. Lord, I pray for those here today that, whoo, they're under such weight, such a burden. I pray that they might find in you a relief, a hope, that they would turn to Jesus and trust in him, that they would call out to you for help, for salvation, that they would be eager to turn to you, to admit that where they've sojourned is really turned into a much longer stay than they anticipated. Lord, I pray that we might be people of great humility able to call out to you. Lord, I pray that we might be people of great boldness that will call out to you. Lord, I pray that we would be people of great gratitude that will receive from you your forgiveness and your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.